0: teachings of the way of awakening, um, which is the wisdom of uncertainty or the graciousness of not knowing. And my teacher Ajahn Chah, this wonderful old forest master in Thailand, used to like to answer all kinds of questions and things that were going on, he would just say, the, the Thai language, he would say, my na, um, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? You know, and you could ask him, you know, what do you think should happen with the monastery in the future? And he'd smile and say, my na, you know, or you'd ask him about some dilemma or something that you thought needed to be solved. And sometimes he would have a solution and sometimes he would say, my mm, na. You know, people would ask him about enlightenment. You're an enlightened teacher, right? He'd smile and he'd say, my na you know, it was a great answer. Because he didn't want people to hold on to some fixed idea about him or the way things were. He actually invited what Suzuki Roshi called the beginner's mind, a, an ability to be present in the mystery of life, um, which is that one of the great dimensions of, of inner freedom. The poet Hafiz, he says, impermanence of the body, and uh, Carlos Castaneda years ago was writing about how death is stalking us, and that's actually what makes life so mysterious, that you're here but you know you're only here for a cert- certain time. Impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, a feast would call for drinks. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. And so there's some celebration of the tentativeness of the way things are. Um, Part I'm starting with this, because I've been traveling, teaching with other people, and also engaged with community members and so forth. I did a class in Mill Valley some weeks ago at the Throckmorton with Eckhart Tolle, which was for his, he has his own kind of, web channel and something and it was re- quite wonderful. I really like him and he's a very um, straightforward and simple and you know honorable and guy whos who has a deep realization and it hasn't gone to his head in some way. He's quite quite ordinary and that combination of being himself and then expressing his freedom is beautiful. in fact, You know, he was talking about freedom, just being where you are and open and so forth. He said, I was driving the other day, and he said, and I got on the freeway or whatever, and so I was a little bit confused, and somebody got really angry at me, and they opened their window and they started shouting, bad driver, bad driver. (laughs) And he said, I could feel the old Eckhart that would react in some way to someone yelling like that. He said, but then, because I I was so silent inside, I thought, hmm. Hmm. Bad driver, maybe he's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you can feel the difference, the kind of freedom of not taking that great position about somebody and just saying, oh, maybe there's some information here I should pay attention to. <sighs> so someone who's been, um, who's worked at Stewart, Stewart Rock in a, in a A good friend, um, unexpectedly, as happens, had a stroke um, and uh, went to the hospital this last week, a major stroke, and also found out that they have other very significant illnesses and are going to be um, now going into hospice. And I visited this friend and this person with some of their loved ones around and just got back. Um, And I don't know, some of you may have done hospice work, or some of you may have had the privilege of being with people, um, especially people who have um, the ability somehow to be more conscious as they go through the process of dying. Um, I wondered how he would be, and of course he was very grateful for the (coughs) Dharma practice that he has, for the meditation and so forth, um, but I'll tell you, it was like visiting some saint in India. It was like Darshan. I went to see this person, um, see him, it's had some family members there. and We saw each other and grabbed our hands, and he can't speak that well, but he can say a little bit, and tears came in his eyes. Um, and we just looked at each other for a long time and hugged, and his eyes were just gleaming bright, and his heart was open like some... Miraculous um, saint or something like that, and the only time recently that I've been with someone like that, um, some weeks ago I was in Hawaii, and I got to spend some days with Ramdas, who's an old friend, and Ramdas is now 82, and he's had some health problems in this last year. He's getting a little bit more frail in certain ways, and he had this incredible mind um, that was articulate and storytelling and wonderful and. Also, sometimes kind of judgmental, those of us who were hanging out with him, not unlike others of us. But anyway, Ramdas once said to me, You tell too many stories. And I looked at him and I said, Ramdas, you of all people to say that. He said, No, no, I know that. He said, You tell a story and you get a laugh. And you don't, you know, anyway. But anyway, there he was. And he's just turned into love. You know, his mind, he said, It's not that interesting anymore. And so sit with him, and he just looks at the people who come, and it's as if he feeds people with his heart and his spirit. He said, my guru said, love people and feed them. And that's all that's left. So there I was in Hospital Kaiser in Linda, you know, having a visit with this extraordinary being, who said, yeah, I don't know how much longer I'll be here. It doesn't look like a long time. and All I want to do is just love people. And you could feel it. Um, and then I had another friend in this very week who had a diagnosis of MS. Um, and actually already the process had started and it was doing. and uh, he was really quite frightened about it at all, and we spent a bunch of time together. Um, and then at some point in the conversation, it had been, I hadn't seen him for a while, so it had been some weeks and he was getting all this information and my God, reading on the internet, what can happen to you? Don't do it, right? <laughs> you know, and all the, all the bad news and things like that. And then somehow in the middle of it, he said, I don't know what's going to happen. My nah. But I don't want to be defined by my illness. I don't want the illness to become who I am. And it was this moment of freedom that he spoke, like the friend in the hospital, that incredible freedom of heart, to say, yes, this is what's happening to this body. Might be a year, it might be 10 years or 20 years, who knows? Um, But I will not be defined by this. It's like Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years in Robben Island with that magnanimity and graciousness. and." freedom of spirit, where they can put your body in prison, but they cannot imprison your spirit. And you could feel it in this person. And then another friend in difficulty who's in the middle of their cancer treatment, who I love a lot and watching, you know, they're they're bald and they're more frail and all the things they're going through. Um, And uh, at the same time, I went to a really joyous wedding last week, and my daughter, who's now 28, all her compadres and friends, I, people that I've gotten close to through, through her over the years, you know, half of them got engaged this year. They're all getting married, or you know, or they're having babies. It's this whole other cycle, and so here's people, you know, headed off stage, and new babies coming in, and. I guess there was one in England I read today in the paper, <laughs> speaking of that, you know. And, um, and we're, as Hafiz says, we're visitors. Um, and how are we going to navigate the mystery of our time here? And this is really what Dharma speaks to. How, what, you know, what values do you have? How do you navigate? joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame and youth and aging and health and sickness and can you find a joyful spirit as the Buddha says live in joy and well-being even amidst sickness even amidst conflict live in a peaceful heart as Nelson Mandela demonstrated so well So. Tonight, I want to speak about some of the principles of the awakened heart in this mystery, the mystery basically of human incarnation, where we find ourselves here with a human body and, you know, all the things that happen on planet Earth, where you have to eat and bathe and go to work and, you know, check your email and stuff like that. I think that's part of incarnation anyway, you know, and how to live wisely. And the element of wisdom tonight is the graciousness of not knowing, the maina part of it. Now, Krishnamurti, who was this great Indian sage in the middle of the last century, for those of you who remember him, um, uh, wrote... um, One of the most important books that he wrote was called Freedom from the Known, um, in which he gave this wonderful teaching, um, and the simple phrase that I'll pull out of it is, the truth is a pathless land. That is to say, no one has ever lived your life before, and you can't impose on it the way that it's supposed to be, or some spiritual teachings of how it's going to be, What you can do is show up for it with an open heart and clear eyes and it's there that wisdom manifests. Truth is a pathless land. Or Zen Master Dogen who said, "Um, enlightenment is like a boat in the middle of the ocean. You can't see the shore. You don't know where you are, but what you know is that you're there in the boat in the center of the world and that is your place. A young girl who lived in a home near uh, open space and big forests, kind of carefree, wandered out into the forest, seven years old, eight years old, and started to walk and walk and kind of saw new things, and it got dark, and she got lost and didn't come home, and the parents got really worried, and they got the neighbors, and they started to call for her, and they went out with their flashlights and looked all over. Terrified and they couldn't find her. Meanwhile, the little girl wandered around for a long time in the forest, crying and lost in the dark and trying one path and another, and finally just got exhausted and found a little clearing and lay down by a big rock and fell asleep. And the frantic parents and neighbors, everybody scoured the forest, and by the morning they hadn't found her. And people became exhausted and went, and the father kept going on. And finally in the morning, the father came to the clearing. And he suddenly saw the little girl, ran toward her yelling, making all this noise. She saw her dad coming, opened her eyes, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, I found you. (laughs) Like the boat on the ocean, What we're looking for is where we are, which is this mystery. And then the navigation in this mystery is really the navigation, the compass of the heart. Now, in case you need a little more evidence, my friend Rodney, who was the director of the largest hospice in the Northeast, uh, in the Northwest for a long time in Seattle told me a story. He said one morning he was going to go do rounds through the hospice. And this family of several grown children came to see him. And they said, we have a real dilemma. Our dad is here, he knew. He's um, 82, and he's very, very close to dying. And we found out that um, um, his brother died in a car accident yesterday, his younger brother. And we don't know whether we should tell him or not. Will we disturb his process? He's getting very peaceful and it's really close to the end. Maybe we should tell him, maybe we shouldn't. Rodney said, I don't know, my na. Why don't we go and be with him and see what feels right? So they go into the room and they sit and they don't say anything. How are you, dad? I'm okay. He sort of can speak a little bit, but sort of drifting in and out. And at some point he opens his eyes and he said, don't you have something to tell me? And they say, what do you mean? He said, oh, you know, my brother Larry, he died uh, yesterday. And they said, well, how did you know? So oh, I've been talking to him all morning. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so, huh? You'll see. You wait. You'll see. I mean, I tell this story. I was on my way to be there with my brother's, my youngest brother's wife when she was dying. I told this story here recently, and um, I'd been sitting with her and um, uh, tending them, as a number of family members had, and she was a really beautiful, warm-hearted woman, and um, it was really close, and I'd come home, because I was exhausted to get sleep here in Woodacre, and was, got up early and was hurrying back, but I had to stop at the drugstore, just do a really quick errand and I'm running, hurrying to get to because I wanted to get there. And I'm in line in the drugstore, um, waiting for the person in front of me to check out, and all of a sudden my body just relaxes. And I go, Oh, she died. And I get out of the drugstore and I call my brother and cell phone. I said, So how is Esther? He said, Oh, she died five minutes ago. And we know it. There is some way in which the truth is we are connected in this field of this mysterious field of consciousness and being. And you've all heard these stories. You know why? They're true. That's why. And who do you think you are? You are life itself coming into incarnation. You get this body. You rent it for a while. But it's, it doesn't limit you. It's not the essence of who you are. You're a spirit. So, uh, a fellow went to the Buddha to ask him, came up to him, he said, I have a question for you, you're a Buddha, right? The Buddha said, yes. He said, good, I've got a tough question for you, but you know, Buddhas should have answers to these things, right? He said, I want to know what happens when you die. And the Buddha said, well, he said, "Um, why do you want to know? The man said, I want to know because it will tell me how I should live my life if I know what happens after you die. The Buddha was quiet for a moment and then he said, all right, suppose, he said, suppose that you have many lives, that you die and your spirit gets reborn in other forms. If that were true, how would you want to live? The man said, well, I'd want to live with generosity to people because that would make the karma for having people give me good things in return in future lives. And I'd want to live with integrity because that would be a kind of purity that would carry into the next life. I'd want to live with compassion because that would awaken the best qualities of my heart. And perhaps that would bring me blessings in a future life. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. He said, now suppose that you only have one life. How then would you want to live? And the man reflected and he said, Well, I'd want to be generous because you can't take it with you. I might as well have the joy of sharing. And I'd want to live with integrity because then you can sleep at night because it's the sleep of the just. Then you really are living true to who you are no matter how long you have. And I'd certainly want to develop compassion because if we're only here for a short while, what else really matters? So he gave basically the same answer. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend, and that was his answer. You know, he didn't say one way or the other, but rather he let him rest in mystery and not fill his mind with this is the way it's going to be, although you'll see, you'll you'll see. I teach one thing and one thing alone, said the Buddha, I teach. Suffering and the ways that human beings create suffering out of greed and fear and hatred and confusion. And I teach the end of suffering, what's called the sure heart's release, freedom in any circumstances. So it's not that I teach a philosophy, it's not that I teach a set of beliefs, it's not that there's something that you have to take and become a Buddhist, spare your friends and family, it is the direct experience of the awakened heart, of the free heart here and now. So what is it with this uncertainty, with my nah, that the heart can know? <laughs> Everything changes, have you noticed? There's one. There's praise and blame and gain and loss and light and dark and sweet and sour and birth and death. We are in the realm of change. The realm of form is a realm of change. There you go. What else do you know? Whatever opinion I have, there's another. (laughs) You know that? That there's views and opinions and that there are other views and opinions that grasping and clinging and holding on to things that are changing doesn't work very well. You get what's called rope burn, basically. <laughs> that suffering is caused by resisting the way things are. And freedom comes from dancing with the changes of life. What else do we know? The verse from the Dhammapada, Hatred never ceases by hatred, never ends by hatred. But by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And we can see it in our own hearts and communities and in the global sufferings that if you add hatred to hatred, it just continues the cycle. So there are things that we can know, these deep fundamental truths about human incarnation. And what brings us from the suffering, clinging in fear or hatred or confusion into the peace of the heart that can be gracious in the midst of the changes of this stance of life that you've been given. So how to practice this? Because again, it's not just a set of ideas or ideals. Where is this? Huh? Disappeared. I was looking for this passage from Rachel Carlson, the great naturalist, where she said, if I had the gift of the fairy godmother to give a blessing to each child, It would be simply this, that that spirit of wonder that's there in the eyes of a two-year-old or a three-year-old in meeting for the first time an apple tree, you know, or a turtle, or the amazement of a rainbow, would remain with you for the whole of your life. So the way to practice This is called beginner's mind, is to keep the spirit, the child of the spirit. um, Is to find your way to quiet your mind, open your heart, and become present. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, called this taking the one seat. He said, if you want meditation instructions, there's a little room with six windows and doors. Open the doors and the windows. Put your meditation seat in the middle of it and let all the visitors come and go as they will and there's just very simple instructions stay in your seat and notice what comes and goes and all the rest will be revealed to you and of course this is metaphorical because the windows and doors are the windows of the eyes and the ears and the nose and the tongue and the body and mind The point of meditation isn't to make a grim duty, but rather to take your seat as the Buddha in the midst of this mysterious incarnation. I like nothing more in the world than just listening, sitting on my ass, being happy, doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes, you'd realize that getting off this ass would be a crime against nature. (laughs) Lori Chapman. It's her expression of Dharma invitation, to take your seat. And when you do, then one of the great principles of wisdom is the capacity to bring presence mindfulness, maybe we'll call it loving awareness, to the circumstances that arise and pass. To sit with a dignity, a graciousness, as we were practicing before, you can bow to what comes. Sometimes it's also called a sacred attention, that you become the temple and the various visitors come to the temple, the sadness that you carry and the longing and the love and the generosity and the visions of what's possible and of course you get all the movies and all the different you know stories that come things in your body and emotions and visions um, sometimes joy and bliss sometimes the disappointment and grief and tears Katagiri Roshi who was one of the Roshis who followed Suzuki Roshi here and was one of the main teachers for at Tassahara in San Francisco Zen Center and also was Steve Jobs' teacher for a while. I think lived in Steve Jobs' garage for a while. Steve Jobs said that um, he'd gone to India to find a guru. He was on his way to meet Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, but Neem Karoli Baba died just when Steve got to India. And he said, I was so surprised I came back and here was this Zen master living in Los Altos, where I was, you know, and my guru was right there in the neighborhood. But anyway, Katagiri, somebody asked him, how do I learn the warmth and the confidence and the steadiness and ease that you seem to manifest? And he said, nobody sees the long years I sat at my master's temple in the cold, in the dark, in the rain, you know, through painful times and good times, um, tending the fires, helping the cook in the kitchen, receiving the offerings in my hands. He said, if you want to know how I did that, practice in this way. Give yourself to the practice of presence, sacred presence. And so you sit, and all kinds of stuff comes, as that first poem I read. You know, the coyotes and the frogs, and you sit in the midst of your loneliness and longing, and also your love and your connection with life, all of those things, and each moment, moment by moment, it's not about making something happen, but opening yourself to say, to trust, I can be here, present for this mystery with a graciousness of heart. There's also something deeply political about it, and I think it's important to say it tonight, especially with all the stuff about Trayvon Martin and you know, the incredibly painful conflict that's embedded in our culture and in each one of us around racism and the kinds of fears and I always read this passage from um, James Baldwin where he says that um, one of the reasons that people cling to their hates and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hatred is gone they will be forced to deal with their own insecurity and pain and so we projected on other people we projected on the communists or the Muslims or the immigrants or the blacks or the browns or whoever it happens to be because it's hard to bear our own insecurity and our own not knowing and I know when I started to work years ago doing men's work with Robert Bly and Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, these great guys who are doing all these Men's retreats and a whole series of them with kids, working with youth who are coming out of um, the gang life in inner cities in Oakland and Watts and East Los Angeles, Chicago, and so forth. Uh, at first, I was kind of intimidated. You know, here are these guys and um, they're used to the street life and there had been used to a lot of violence and I'm thinking I'm gonna teach meditation to these guys like what do I have to offer to them in some way and I I, there was a way in which um, I think again because of my own prejudice and fears that when I would go to you know parts of the city where which were predominantly black or and poor that combination or predominantly Latino and poor, Asian poor, where there were gangs and so forth, um, it scared me. I didn't quite know how to handle that. So he started doing these retreats, you know, and at first the guys are all sitting in the back with their hoods up and things like that. Okay, I'll tell the story that I always tell, but it seems important to do here somehow in the middle of this. Because um, they come in and you know, you're gonna say, well, I'll teach you meditation, or here's a poem. Come on, poetry, man, I got nine millimeter pointed at me, you know, give me something a little better than a poem, right? Although Luis Rodriguez, who's this fantastic Latino poet, will stand up and read a poem that's like a Mayan sacrifice. He just gets there and talks about what it was like to be in the gang life or in prison or, you know, shooting heroin down in the viaduct in LA, and they go, man, you can write that stuff? Um, but anyway, Mostly, they're not so interested, and then in the simplest ritual, take a table, put a candle in the middle of it, and say, we can't really start because there's so much that's unspoken in this room. So if you would, go out into the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed and put it on the table and say their name, please. And some of these guys come back with their hands full of stones. And this is for RJ, and this is for Tito, and this is for homegirl, and this is for... And you could just weep as you hear them recite the names. And all of a sudden, as soon as that's done, and we sit back down, there is a sense that, okay, this is a place where something real can be talked about, where the, where the kind of tearing of the soul that's happened, where somebody's actually going to listen. Um, and things all change. And by the time i spend a week with these guys, not only do I feel connected with them, but I feel connected with everybody who's in a gang, you know, and I go in the city and and, and, and I see some guy in his, you know, high gang style and I wanna like cross the street and say, Hey dude, how's it going? Like these are my buddies, you know. Not always the best move, by the way, but <laughs> But I could see all my prejudices and all the ways that I, and my fears and things, get dissolved through that connection. And there's some way in which the, the task of mindfulness um, is not just a personal task. The, the task of undoing our prejudices or of listening with a beginner's mind and a fresh heart is called, you know, Uh, is called for the whole nation to do and somebody to see behind these eyes uh, that child of the spirit, the the beauty that was born in every single being you know, and sometimes they're traumatized and sometimes they're angry and so forth, but underneath is that person just like you that's part of the web of your life and without our learning to do that individually, collectively, globally, we're just going to continue our suffering So this first practice in neuroscience, it's called uh, Expanding the Window of Tolerance, is being able to take your seat in the midst of your measure of tears and grief that you carry and longing and loneliness, to take your seat in the midst of your creative impulses and your vision and your love. Some people find um, Loving themselves to be difficult, in the middle of your self-judgment. To take your seat um, in the midst of the life that's unfolding in you, and begin to trust your capacity to be present, which is your own Buddha nature. So, you know, when you come to meditate here, and how's it going? Well, it was boring, I fell asleep, I was angry, I'm still working out this thing at my job. You know, I'm worried because my parents got sick, I'm, or my kid or whatever. It wasn't a very good meditation. How do you know? <laughs> my na. It was actually the perfect meditation. It was the meditation of you sitting like the Buddha under your tree of enlightenment with the tainted glory of your, man, your humanity displaying itself, and you're asked to keep your seat, to feel your breath, and to discover the capacity to be present for this mystery. And that's mostly what people want from you, you know, the people that love you, the things that you care about. When somebody says, I want a little attention, please, that's not a small thing. That's what others want too, your ability to be present. So when I went into the hospital to see this friend, who was in this kind of extraordinary state, Sometimes he might not be, or others aren't. Sometimes they're really frightened or you know, lost and so forth. What matters is to show up and say, yes, this is where you are, here I am. That you carry this capacity and trust in yourself. And then you start to feel that you're free, that your life belongs to you and not to the circumstances that keep changing. So what else is critical? is a profound compassion. You have to discover this in yourself. And Frank Ostaseski, who's a good friend and who started the Zen Center Hospice. I guess I'm talking about hospice tonight, Okay. Um, um, There was a film that Bill Moyers made some years ago called Dying on Your Own Terms. And as part of that film, they were gonna visit people who were dying in different circumstances. And the film crew was a lot of young people, many of whom had never been around death. And when the Buddha was coming out of the, as the myth is told, coming out of the protection of the palaces and all the things that his parents had protected him from, he had these heavenly messengers for the first time he saw a really old person, a really sick person, and finally a dead body. And remember when you first saw a dead body? It's like, oh, who does this happen to? said the Buddha. And his charioteer said, why, everyone, sir. Oh, whoops. You know, um, this is a wake up. So Bill Moyers was concerned that the film crew who'd be going into these very intimate circumstances of hospice would, uh, would not know how to handle it. And he called Frank at Zen Center Hospice and they spent a day together and before they even went to visit some of the patients at Laguna Honda and places, they began to talk about what they understood about death, what their fears were, what their imaginings of being with somebody. And then Franco took out this set of beautiful 12 by 14 black and white photos that someone at Zen Center had taken over the years of various patients who had gone through their hospice and had died. And you know, sometimes, again, when you have the privilege of being with someone dying consciously, there is a kind of luminosity that comes as well. You know, that spirit that they are starts to shine through the frail body. And so they were each given a picture to sit with and look in the face of this person who had died in the last year before they went and met with anybody. And then after several minutes of meditating with that, they were asked to pass the picture around to the next person so they could receive a different picture. And no one wanted to let go of their picture. They had fallen in love with that person that was there in their hand and in their lap. Because even through the photograph there was that looking into the eyes of this mystery of this person. So what's asked of us to live with wisdom is the capacity to tolerate joy and sorrow and our measure of tears and longing and love, Um, and to do so requires the the profound compassion of a Buddha. Not judging it, not saying it should be some other way, it's the way that it is. And I don't mean that in a passive way that you don't stand up and fight for justice or or serve the world in ways that it really needs from you. Um, but it's not your job to fix the whole world. The world is this world of birth and death and praise and blame and success and failure and to somehow carry yourself with dignity and compassion to see our human condition with the eyes of a Buddha in the midst of it actually makes you a more effective person in making a difference in the world. Your neighbors, your boss, your co-workers interviewing people about their meditation practice This one woman who'd become a nun, she said, In my second community there were only a dozen nuns. She'd she'd lived there for many years. I liked all but two. One was lazy and the other was self-absorbed. After my first year I was in the kitchen complaining to a friend who said, You know, these are really not bad people. What is it that gets to you? And I said, Well, one is lazy and the other takes just too much care of herself. And my friend replied, well you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself (laughs) because we project it on somebody else you know and if you're really gracious and you're really loving and I don't mean to like lay that on you or something but rather to remind you of that capacity in those moments that you are it all changes and it doesn't mean you can't set limits or direct things or stand up for yourself but when you encounter the measure of difficulties of your life um, around you and the conflicts. There's always going to be conflict. Conflict's not bad, it's just conflict. Somebody not want conflict? Good luck. (laughs) So how do you move as a Buddha through this? Overcome all bitterness, say the Sufis because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the world in our heart, each of us are endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. And so you can begin to feel your measure of tears, of grief and loss and change and circumstances. And then you become the Buddha of compassion, Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and say, yeah, this is our human lot. We have a measure of sorrow and tears and a measure of immense beauty. Every sunrise and every sunset and every flower and every child you meet and, you know, you are given unbearable beauty and mystery and loss and tears as well. And the heart wants to open. It doesn't open if you think the pain is too much or overwhelm my pain. But it turns out that it's not your pain. It's the pain. It's the tears of the world. The physical pain and limitations of human life. We all have it. It's aging. Everybody anybody not have that? <laughs> Make a mistake here? It's just what you get. It's not yours, it's the the curriculum. And then with it, there comes the ability to carry your graciousness and your compassion and illuminate the world. And I just spent a day with some of these guys I've worked with over the years, with Michael B., Luis Rodriguez, others, and we were partly telling stories from the past as a way to look forward to the future. In one of the events I wasn't at, Michael and Robert Bly and a few other people were in Washington, D.C., just when the U.S. was starting the Gulf War, if those of you remember back to that. And um, the hall was like a thousand men. A number of them were vets who knew that war was not a particularly... Good way to solve human problems. I mean, maybe there are times for a just war, and I'm not going to get into having a fixed opinion that I'm proposing to you, my nah, right? But we could certainly do with a lot less of them, and they're not always very good at solving human problems. So the whole room felt like this was not something they could get behind, decided, let us go. Michael and the others, and do a ritual and a walk to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as an expression of the tears that we carry from all the vets that were there to say, don't enter into war so quickly, so glibly. So a thousand men had candles that were lit, little candles, and they left this hall, And they started to walk the blocks down one of the great avenues in Washington toward the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And pretty quickly the police came out and they said, you don't have a permit. You can't have a protest like this. And Michael who said normally his relationship growing up in a kind of tough Irish neighborhood in Brooklyn or whatever was to immediately get in conflict with the police. He said, I realized this wasn't the moment for conflict, especially since we were trying to lead the group out of conflict. <laughs> so he said, instead, officer, what's illegal about this? He said, without a permit, you can't, walk on, you can't be in the streets. And Michael said, how about the sidewalks? And the officer said, that's allowed. So they got the group on the sidewalks carrying their candles. And then they walked to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which is part along the mall, part of the National Park Service, no rituals are allowed there, no protests, no rituals. It's, it's illegal that they don't want it used for that. Um, it's only a personal shrine, turns out, even though it's of course a collective shrine with those 58,000 names on that long black wall. So as they start to go in the park, the cops come up again. They say, you can't go here, no ritual. And Michael said, well, what's the ritual of this? They said, well, you're all chanting, they were doing this African song, which was a a, a mourning song, a grief-rich grief song, about those who'd gone to war and not returned. They were all singing it over and over and over again. He said, "You're singing the song. You're carrying candles. That's a ritual. It's not allowed." <laughs> Michael said, "Okay." He said, "We won't carry the candles." And he found two guys, a black guy and a white guy, and stationed them at the beginning of the memorial, and he said, when our guys get down there, we'll blow out the candles. And then he took two guys and stationed up the other far end of that wall with a lighter, an Asian guy and a Latino guy, a Native American. And he said, you light their candles again. And so here's a group of a thousand men carrying these candles and singing this African song of the grief of war coming to the memorial as they get there having these two men bow and blow out their candle and then walking in the dark at night silently along that whole long wall and then at the end their candle lit and again they begin to sing and the police are just there watching this thing saying whoa you know when it was over they came up and they said what was that to Michael and he said well it was kind of a ritual (laughs) That's supposed to be illegal, right? But they were so moved. They said, where are you going now? We'll lead you there. We'll take you there. You know, There's something about being in the present and not knowing, but showing up with a compassionate heart and with the tolerance to not know and the capacity to stay in yourself in the midst of where you are that allows you to move through this world as a Buddha as someone who's awake and offers blessings. Presence, compassion, without the compassion it doesn't work. And of course the compassion has to be especially directed toward yourself. You know the word in Tibetan or in the Asian languages for compassion, it's weird, we think about compassion for that poor person there and that one and that one as if it's for somebody else, but the circle of compassion for it to operate and be complete has to also include guess who? Moi, as Miss Piggy says, right? It has to include yourself. Um, otherwise, it turns into codependence. I'm taking care of them, and you forget that you too are worthy of the same compassion. Is this compassionate for this one as well? So, the capacity for presence that you learn through your sitting, the capacity for compassion that you learn through your practice. And then beginning to trust the amazing dimension of awareness, the mysterious dimension of awareness that is unborn and timeless. My teacher Ajan Chah, I tell this story, he went spent a number of years in the jungle learning meditations and doing all these great trainings of samadhi and yogic practices and had visions and deep experiences and you know, also lived in caves and tigers were around and stuff, lived through all that stuff. And then he went to see the greatest meditation master of the time and talked to this old Ajahn, Ajahn Man, and sat down and told him about all the insights and understandings and visions and things he had. And Ajahn Mun, when he was finished, shook his head and said, you've missed the point. <laughs> you've missed the point all these years. He said, the point isn't the experiences. Experiences are just experiences. And when you sit in meditation, Some days you get romantic comedies, some days you get tragedies, you get war movies, you get, you know, documentaries, you get historical things, right? You get science fiction, you get fantasy. I know you get a lot of those, right? Sometimes some of you also have a pornographic channel in there. I know you do. And it's not a bad channel sometimes, but there it is, right? You get every kind. The mind has no pride, right? And it will do that. And what Ajahn Man was saying to, to my teacher, he said, it's not those experiences, but the question is, to whom do they happen? Turn your awareness from the experience to recognize the one who knows, the knowing. Become the knowing, which is the witnessing to all things, and there you will find the awakening of the Buddha in yourself. And so again, it's not what happens in your meditation, but it's the capacity to begin to trust the space of awareness, the witnessing that can say, oh, romance today, you know, and tragedy today, and, you know, now here's longing today, and here's creativity, you know, there's this whole fountain of creativity that comes. And then here's the judgment of it, you know, it's good or bad or whatever. It's like that cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer, where in the first square he's sitting there saying, I inherited my father's way of thinking and perceptions about things. Second square, and I inherited my father's style of dressing and kind of the class that he had and moving through the world. The third one, I inherited um, my father's uh, political and athletic sensibilities, or whatever. And then the last square, oh, and I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. Right? <laughs> and there you are, you've got all these stories inside, right? And they show themselves, and the point isn't to get rid of them, or to get rid of the complexity of your humanity, the tainted glory of your humanity, to use Oscar Wilde's phrase, but to discover and trust the space of awareness to say, oh yes, this too, isn't this interesting? Today we have tears, or today we have creativity, today we have tremendous joy, you know, and love, and well, today we have fear and anxiety. Oh, I know you. You get to know each one. This is a visitor, huh? Oh, thank you for coming. You know, today's the scary movie. We like them. People pay a lot to go to scary movies. They do. You know, why would there be so many scary movies? Somebody likes it, right? So you get all those movies, and you rest in the one who knows. And in that trust, there grows presence, compassion, understanding, and the wisdom of uncertainty, the graciousness of not knowing, woman was headed to work one morning. She was a physician, had her little doctor's bag in the front or in the back seat, whatever, in the seat of the car, next to her five-year-old who was in the car with her being dropped off at kindergarten. And her little girl reached into the medical bag and pulled out her mom's stethoscope and was playing with it. And her mom, driving along, started to smile, oh gosh, you know, my daughter, she's so bright creative maybe maybe she'll become a doctor like me you know and all those fantasies that we have as parents right and then the little girl takes the end of the stethoscope and puts it up to her mouth and says welcome to mcdonald's may i take your order please you know we have so many ideas about who somebody is And what's going to happen? My na, my Can you rest in the graciousness of uncertainty? And then people say, well, then how do I guide myself? And the guidance comes through dedication and commitment and the vision that you carry, not to the clinging because it's not in your control. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, that the secret, okay, you paid your money, your eight bucks or whatever it was tonight, here's where you get your money's worth. <laughs> the secret, the secret is to act well, to act beautifully, without attachment to the outcome of your actions. You hear that? The secret is to act well, without attachment to the outcome of your actions because it's not in your power to determine how it's going to come out. It isn't with your children or the world and so forth. But what you can do from this place of presence and compassion and not knowing for sure is then dedicate yourself to act beautifully. And this becomes the work of the bodhisattva, to commit yourself to compassion and courage and presence for your life and the life of the earth around you, to show up for it um, not knowing how it's going to play out but offering your seeds of goodness, your best, your moments of compassion, your care, your presence. That's what you're here to do and we each have different gifts and if you can't give your gift to the world it's really a tremendous loss for this life. You were brought here, or you were given this incarnation, and we're not satisfied if we can't give something beautiful to the world. And that beauty isn't necessarily some great thing that you do. As Mother Teresa says, everybody's heard that saying, you cannot do great things in this world, but you can do small things with great love. That beauty is to live in the reality of the present, and moment by moment, as the Buddha you are, be present for the mystery, the joys, and the tears of life, and offer yourself with graciousness and compassion. Plant the seeds, dedicate yourself to the care and the awakening of yourself and those around you. Oh, nobly born, the Buddhist text says, remember who you really are. You are the Buddha, and you have this capacity to carry this beauty of your Buddha nature, wherever you live, whatever your circumstances, trust this in yourself. And as you do, there comes an ease and a graciousness and a kind of equanimity. You're at the banquet of life. The Tao Te Ching, it says, I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. Simplicity, Patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thought, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all beings in the world. Kind hearted as a grandmother, it goes on, dignified as the king. Wherever you are, you put yourself in the harmony of the Tao and serve all beings. Ram To me, that's the power of a Gandhi, a Buddha, a Christ, just one clear person who isn't caught. Don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway to mystery, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon look like children's toys. I mean, because that's really the force of life itself, like gravity, is love. You know, sometimes it's unrequited, sometimes it's twisted, as James Baldwin says, because we can't tolerate our insecurity, we blame it on another. But all of it is this web of life that you are a part of, which is love. It's, it's what we are. Um, and it's so much bigger than the limitations that we place on ourselves and the world. So you are invited into the realm of the Buddhas. You're invited to find your great heart of wisdom and compassion your birthright to dedicate yourself from that to bring your gifts to the world nothing else really satisfies the heart W.S. Merwin little breath breathe me gently row me gently for I am a river I'm learning to cross and I thank you for coming for our sitting together and coming back to tend ourselves, and for listening, as you have, to these words. Let's sit for a moment quietly. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks for this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. And so I hope you leave here tonight with a little more tenderness and a little more deeply present for yourself and this mysterious earth and beings around you, and that you carry this in your own beautiful way over the days ahead. I have a note here that someone's looking for a ride to Tam Valley. Is there anybody who can give a ride? To